Esther. Hi. Hello. Who are you? All of a sudden, you don't know who I am. <laughs> Did you... Was it so easy to forget me? Hi. I'm what? Luke Skywalker. Ew. <laughs> that was lame. <laughs> Men as a nerd. I know what I Have am. Have you ever seen Eric Foreman from That 70s Show? Imagine them... As a hot girl, that's Amanda. Ew. I said what I said. It was so scrawny. We are hot. So, Divya, let's have a nice, smooth, clean, NPR style. Hi. <laughs> this is How Did We Get Here with your hosts, Amanda and Divya. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the show. Today, we'll be talking about carrots and why they're so important to the government and the viewers who are listening. Please donate $5. Public radio is important. Our drive-ins in just two minutes. If you donate, we can promise maybe half a half a wheel of cheese. We need to practice our improv. <laughs> You didn't think half a wheel of cheese was great? I just coughed during it. Wait, how much do you know about the U.S. government cheese subsidies? Amanda, tell me about the cheese subsidies. So the government likes cows? Thanks, Amanda, for that information. Thank you. I understand why cheese is subsidized in America. No, no, so this started started during, like, the Great Depression into World War II, right? So they had... A lot of hungry people that up until that point, they were just letting starve to death. Mm. America. Um, And basically what happened was the government said, yo, you know, it would be a great fucking thing if we just like bought a shit ton of milk because our, shut the fuck up, (laughs) because our farmers are producing lots of dairy milk. But they can't sell it because no one can afford it. So we'll buy it and we'll try to sell a lot of it back to people through like programs and stuff. And then whatever we can't actually sell, we'll start producing it to cheese and we'll give that as part of like food stamp programs and that kind of stuff. They didn't have food stamps back then, but like the equivalent. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Yeah, the government, like, highly subsidizes the dairy industry in the United States, and that's why cheese is in literally fucking everything. A lot of restaurant cheese and stuff comes from the the government. Wonderful. I'm lactose intolerant. Yeah. This entire segment was completely uninteresting to me. <laughs> but did you ever, like, when you were in, like, middle school and high school and stuff, did you ever, like, look at the school lunches? I rarely ate a school lunch. Well, yeah, but, like, a lot of them have, like, they're, like, 90% cheese. Like mac and cheese, pizza, like I only cheeseburgers. Pizza. Yeah. Yeah. It's because they get it for free. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, wow. We are not even in a story yet. And we've taught you knowledge. Have we? And that's how we got here. Thank you. Episode <laughs> 10, wrap. <laughs> um, how do we do these? It's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah. I had COVID. I'll talk about it because it was so traumatic for me. 
I had depression. I had that <laughs> too. And we both had anxiety. Oh, so much anxiety. Far more than me on this count. I still have that. It's great. But we're we're here. We're recording. And we're cheese. Cheese. Everyone is cheese. You ever feel like you're not human? Always. That's because you're cheese. I'm a cheese person. You're not a person. You're just cheese. Stop! Let me be at least a cheese person. No. You can at best be a cheese worm. I'll take cheese worm. You're a cheese worm. Thank you. Hey, Divya. Hey. Would you still love me if I was a cheese worm? Oh my god. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll put you in the fridge. Huh? So you don't waste away. Cheese belongs in the fridge. If I was a cheese worm, and then I, I, I could eat myself. You. Oh. What? I think if you had to die, I mean, eventually you'd become bad cheese, right? But I think if you had to die a noble death, you'd want to be eaten by bunny. <laughs> Our cat. <laughs> Our cat bunny. No, bunny would just, like, take me, and she'd do the thing where she just, like, beats the shit out of me, <laughs> and then forgets that I exist. You'd be under the couch. Yeah. And then I'd die there. Waste away. You'd find me in three years and be like, oh, what is this shriveled up little piece of crap? Me. I'm the shriveled up little piece of crap. So if you're about seven minutes into our podcast and wondering what it's about. Oh, oh, hi. Did we do introductions? We did. Okay. Several times. Cool. But just for one more time, I'm Divya. That's Amanda I'm dying. Amanda. <laughs> I'm a shriveled up piece of crap. She's a cheese worm. Genus cheese species worm. Deceased. Yes. Thank Deceased. You. So what's our podcast? Our podcast. Every week, our lovely sound engineer, Luke, gives us a word a topic we take that topic and then we don't talk about it we go how far can i get away with it and what uh what cool stories can i tell Mm -hmm. and somehow our stories end up at the topic so for example this week's topic is houseplants oh yeah so the example will be the episode (laughs) (laughs) you'll see how we get to houseplants (laughs) Throughout this episode, you will see this example. <laughs> That's how the episodes usually go. Sometimes. Yeah. Join us for about an hour and a half of pure chaos <laughs> as we embark on the journey to houseplants. Houseplants. Webster's Dictionary defines houseplants as, I think I remember it as, plants grown indoors or in a house. That's legitimately, I think that's the definition. All right. All right, all right. We're cooking with gas. I forgot I was going first. I don't feel like this is a going first story. I feel like this is a going second story. What does that even mean? No, she has to go first now. I want to know what she means. I just mean that it's like, it's like a story I feel like we need to be a little bit warmed up for. Oh yeah? In terms of like, it's not like, oh my God, so interesting. But like, if you've already listened to some of the podcasts and you're already kind of in the whips with us, you're like, I'll finish the episode. So my story Mm -hmm. is a fantastic story. If you're listening, you should continue to listen to hear this wonderful story. Oh yeah? Oh yeah. Oh audience, you want to know what she said just like a minute ago? No. (laughs) No one wants to know what I said. I uh, 
think that this is a going second story. <laughs> every time, every time, every time, every time. I need to be warmed up. <laughs> I don't sound like that. I really don't. We're going to talk about yes. beloved author, mm-hmm. Jonathan Swift. I don't... He wrote Gulliver's Travels. Okay. Yes. Now I know. Yeah. We're going to walk through his life. Okay. As we walk through many a life on this podcast. Mm-hmm. We'll walk through Jonathan Swift's life. Jonathan Swift. Jonathan. Jonathan. Jonathan Swift. <laughs> it took me a while to get used to the white boy name. You're trying to say it like an Australian. Jonathan. Jonathan. Bobby. <laughs> Nor. <laughs> Nor shrimp on the Barbie Jonathan. <laughs> that... Get 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 into the story. My New Year's resolutions is complete. I've mastered an accent. (laughs) Get into your story, ma'am. I've rendered her speechless. (laughs) Jonathan Swift was born in the olden days. Like when you say back in my days, it was like back in the olden olden days that were mine. Sixteen sixty seven. Oh fuck. Yeah. I didn't know he was that old. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. This dude, very unloved. Oh. His mom, straight up, didn't like him. (laughs) At least that's my theory from reading things that happened to him. He totally grew up in a family that was like, I'm your family, so I love you, but I don't have to like you. Yeah, that was the vibe I got. Basically, a majority of Jonathan Swift's life, early life, was just getting sent away. I mean, see you rich kid. Yeah. Yeah. His mo- uh, his dad died, I think, before he was born. Rough. Um, he died of syphilis. Rough. Yeah, and he's like, I got it from dirty sheets out of town. He's quoted <laughs> saying that. And I'm like, sure. Sure, paternal swift. I, I believe you. You got it from dirty sheets. It's not real nice to call your uh, lovers dirty sheets. <laughs> and then his mom sent him away with his wet nurse to her hometown for two years. When he was, like, one. I I don't know. That just doesn't seem very maternal to me. You're like, oh, my baby. You know what I want? Here, take the wet nurse and go with her to her hometown that's so far away from you for two years. To be fair, this child probably popped out and she was like, you kind of look like my dead husband. Mm. Why don't you fuck right off? Yeah. Um. So because their dad was out of the picture, and by out of the picture, I mean dead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> His uncle took up the responsibility of educating him, and he got a degree. It wasn't that wonderful of a degree. It was in something stupid. Did he go home and say, Mommy, Daddy, look at me. I went to school, and I, I got, got a degree. degree. All Everyone, my friends call it the big D. Everyone should listen to Wet Leg. Mm-hmm. We just quoted Chase Long. Yes. Um, then, when the Glorious Revolution took place in Ireland... Spicy. He fled to England... Good like choice. Um, no, no, great choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he began working as a secretary and personal assistant of Sir William Temple. Mm. So right. this dude is like the friend of a fa- like a friend of the family, basically. Swift really like admires this dude. Mm-hmm. Swift is like kind of a cynic most of his life. I mean, he wrote Gulliver's Travels for God's sake. So yeah. Also, a nepo baby. Yes. Mm. He's giving, 
I wish you guys had seen Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Go watch it. It's also on the <laughs> list. So many movies. Um, but, but he's giving Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. <laughs> to be fair, I understand that reference. You are upper middle class. <laughs> Have you seen that scene for that movie? It's great. Um... But there, he, like, works under Sir William Temple, and while he's, like, pretty cynical of everyone around him, he loves Sir William Temple, and when Mr. Temple eventually passes, mm-hmm. he's, like, and there goes, like, a really great person. Like, the world will never be able to get that back. That's how he said it? Well, he said it, like, in a fancy British way. <laughs> I'm saying it in, like, a Californian way. Hold on, wait. So he's Irish, though, right? Like, originally, Jonathan Swift? Yes. Okay. Rich, rich Irish boy. She Googled it to double check. He's kind of like in, he's Anglo-Irish, so yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So he's the assistant to this dude, mm-hmm. who he ends up really growing to like. He's very well trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, he kind of develops this really ambiguous relationship with a girl he tutored and mentored there. Her name was Esther. Esther? How do you say that? Es- Esther? Esther, yeah. There's no H. They dropped yes. the letter. Again, Esther. Yeah. Okay. It can be spelled either way. With yeah, the I feel H like or without the look, H. It would look weird without the H. Oh, some, some people do it. Hmm. Okay. No offense to any listeners who are named Esther without the H. Um, anybody that's named Esther either version is approximately 95. If there are any 20 year old Esthers listening, no, no offense. They're not. They're not here. <laughs> um,. Yeah, so this girl's named Esther, but he, like, calls her Stella. Um, he, like, that's Stella. like his nickname for her. Stella. Okay. Streetcar named Desire. I haven't seen that. Or read it. Ah, all right. Um, but it should be on my list. I think it's on that 100 books. <laughs> <laughs> that's the a different theme, list! The theme of today is... It's on my list. (laughs) (laughs) Piss me off and you're on my list. (laughs) So he calls her Stella and he ends up like writing during his career at some point, like poems for her, letters. There's like, there's a very traceable long list of letters and everyone kind of thinks there's like something going on between the two of them. Mm -hmm. There's not really any proof for this. They're, although they've corresponded pretty frequently, they're like... There's nothing super actually, like, romantic per se. There's just, like, a sort of intimacy in the letters, like, someone you're close to. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people say they got secretly married in 1716, but there's no proof of that either. Mm. But there is concrete proof that, like, someone else wanted to marry Stella, mm-hmm. and he sent a letter to the guy being like, I don't, I don't think you should marry her. I would heavily dissuade you from doing that. And he, like, then, like, didn't say anything in the letter, but then later back talks and goes, like, that dude's a dick. Like, he should not marry Stella. So, the vibes are weird. All right? Maybe he's just, like, really protective of her. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that's a big possibility. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. There's a couple different... Either way. Another big theory here. That's kind of not cool. Okay. I mean, it depends, right? He's also a man at this time where he just might know more about the other dude. Like, a yeah. Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy, and the mm. other dude. Yeah, yeah. He might be like, this is the type of dude to go and get syphilis from bedsheets. 
Oh. Rough. <laughs> Thanks, but for it hurts. Um, he then became heavily involved in politics for a good many years, kind of between the Tory and Whig parties. I read through this part of the Wikipedia page, and I thought, boring, so I skimmed it. Um, he was there. He did some things. It all kind of went for a knot when the Tory government fell eventually. Mm-hmm. And then by that time, he was very, very old. Um, Hot. Zaddy. <laughs> okay. Um, but during this time where he was involved in politics, he becomes close to a merchant family. Mm-hmm. And there he meets another girl named Esther. Oh my god. Who he nicknames Vanessa. What the fuck? Where is he getting these <laughs> names from? I do not know. Vanessa is actually, like, I think her family surname is, like, Van something. Uh-huh. So you took the Van and then added the Essa. Uh, yeah, but it's, like, not even a nickname. Yeah, it's not. It's just a nickname. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he nicknames her Vanessa. And there's, like, kind of, like, also, I mean, there's clearly something going on between the two of them in terms of, like, Vanessa really likes Swift. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it seems like at some point Swift reciprocated those feelings and then regretted reciprocating it. Mm-hmm. But she ends up kind of, like, following him where he moved, when he moves to another place. Mm-hmm. And then, like, there's also, like, a very intense love triangle because there's Stella and Vanessa. Uh, like Stella. Okay. Like, Vanessa, or Stella seems, like, his relationship with Stella at the time that he is somewhat involved with Vanessa gets really strained. Um, That's not good. Yeah, it's very weird. And then Vanessa ends up dying at age 35 after destroying a will that she wrote in Swift's favor. Hey, I have a question for you. Yeah. You think that one of her nicknames was Bedsheets? (laughs) You're really digging up his daddy problems. (laughs) (laughs) What? The man is turning in his grave right now. <laughs> He's mostly dust at this point, but still. Um, so, this kind of weird love triangle thing happens. Basically, though, at uh, TLDR, Swift never gets married. He has a lot of weird, iffy relationships. And they apparently are both with girls named Esther, who he nicknames is a completely different name. <laughs> You know, He's commitment unwell. issues, daddy issues, yeah. bed sheets. <laughs> um, but I, this part of Jonathan Swift's story I find really inspiring because very failed career in politics, um, failed love affairs according to me, um, and then like all his like his top hits. If you had to put like a Spotify playlist together of Jonathan Swift's top hits, I don't want to. I'm doing it already. Okay. It's A Tale of a Tub, Modest Proposal, and Gulliver's Travel. Okay. Travels. I only know one of those. Oh, Modest Proposal is the one where he, he, it's like a super satirical, uh, he's written the form of a proposal saying that they should take, like, they should sell poor babies to the rich to eat as a delicacy. You know, I feel like that's... Not helping our modern conspiracy world. No, it, it was like heavily satirical. That literally is half of QAnon. Is it really? Yes. That's the problem with all of this stuff, right? Like everybody talked about how 4chan, you know what 4chan is? It was like a precursor. It was like, I am 
or like even Reddit, but like early, 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 early. Oh. Okay. And and it basically was home to like a lot of idiots and modern type trolls that just did whatever the fuck they want. And then all of a sudden, a lot of actual idiots started getting in on it. Mm-hmm. And all of these trolls were, like, developing these stupid conspiracy theories where they were like, well, guys, wouldn't it be really funny if it was, like, Obama's like a lizard? Oh, no. <laughs> no. And then stupid people got involved and they said, Obama's a lizard. <sighs> and he's Muslim. <laughs> Anyways, but, like, my point with Jonathan Swift is that all three of his biggest hits, okay? Mm-hmm. He dropped, like, after 60. So this man, like, the latest part of his life was the most fruitful part of his life. He learned a lot. He wrote a lot. He fell out of favor with the queen, which I always say is a good thing. <laughs> That's fair. No one should be in favor of the queen. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that Elton John took that sir title. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Boy, David Bowie refused. As he should. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But um, I thought that was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, then, when Stella dies, he writes a number of poems about death and gets super fucking depressed. And they find a lock of her hair, presumably at Swift's desk, years later. Ugh, boy couldn't commit. Yeah, I agree. What a concept. Um, he eventually gets a stroke. And that puts him kind of out of commission for the later part of its life. And he basically dies pretty slowly of terminal dementia. Which is rough. Girl. But before that. Get to the houseplants. Top hits. Top hits. (laughs) I have my full story. (laughs) This bitch rushing me for like no reason. Where do you have to go? Where? (laughs) You just told me about a man with a syphilis-ridden father and an asshole mother (laughs) who got old and died and couldn't commit to an Esther. Before I make the the leap to the next part of my story, Mm -hmm. an alternate theory to the love triangle between Vanessa, Stella, and Jonathan. He's gay. No. Oh. Um, So there's a lot of contradictions in the information around Swift's origins and parentage. And so there is an author who's written an entire book about Swift and like kind of follows him pretty closely, mm-hmm. who presumes or postulates that Swift's real father was was Sir William Temple. Whoa. Yeah. And it's widely thought that Stella was Sir William Temple's illegitimate daughter. So in that case, that would have made them like brother and sister. Like half siblings, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why, like, they would have been, like, really close as brother and sister, but because, like, no one can know that, when he wanted to get together with Vanessa later on, mm-hmm. he couldn't marry Vanessa without it looking like he cast off Stella as a mistress. It's the 1600s, the 1700s. Bedsheets really hit the fan. Yeah, bedsheets yeah. really hit the fan. <laughs> so that's, like, an alternate theory to what happened, other than the very stereotypical heterosexual love triangle. <sighs> It maybe can be framed as the love between a brother and sister that lasted a lifetime and he had sacrificed another love for. Yeah, but, like, at the same time, I don't know about you, but, like, I'm not keeping a lock of my sibling's hair and crying over it, you know? My sister died? Yeah. Nah. My sister has very beautiful hair. 
But this is like a dude too, right? Like you gotta think about this from a dude perspective. And like okay, this is they keep all their emotions so pressed down. I hundred percent see a dude keeping a lock of someone's hair. No, no, no. But this is also like this is English culture, right? So like in English culture, like if you if you have a lock of someone's hair like that, it's usually an acceptance of a marriage proposal. So I wouldn't look at that and be like, oh, this is someone pining for their lost sibling. I would definitely be like, this is a lost love. So you you don't believe? I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Sad. I'm I'm a bedsheets proponent. Hmm. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's really my favorite part of the story so far. <laughs> um, well, we're going to jump now. Okay, um, so one of the things that Jonathan Swift did was called the Irish Loan Fund. Okay. So the first 500 pounds he ever had to his own name, he lended it out to poor tradesmen in small sums of like five and ten pounds, and they could pay it back like shillings a week. Oh my god, he might have given some of this to my fucking family. Whoa. I mean, probably not, but... It's cool to think about. I'm sure that my family in the past was also a bunch of degenerate alcoholics, <laughs> so <laughs> wouldn't call them tradesmen per se. <laughs> yeah, but he wanted to help provide poverty relief and kind of like help small scale economic development for mm-hmm. the poor. And this is the first historical occurrence of micro lending, which bloomed into the huge field of microfinance. Mm-hmm. So, for those who do not know and would like a little bit of economics, because I've been listening to NPR's Planet Money. This is Planet Money <laughs> coming to you hot and ready. Hot and ready. On Thursday? Why do I feel like it's a Thursday thing? I would not know. I okay. listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> they drop it when they drop it. <laughs> um, so, microfinance are financial services provided to the unemployed or low-income individuals mm-hmm. slash groups who lack access to conventional banking services. Microloans generally range between $100 to $25,000, and they are basically, the premise of it is they're hoping to give impoverished people an opportunity to become self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows them to take on like reasonable small business loans, and they try to focus these on impactful populations like women, mm-hmm. and specifically probably developing nations. Um, so they also, in addition to just like giving them this money, they help walk them through like finance management skills. Mm-hmm. They help them open like a checkings and savings account and they teach like basic bookkeeping and accounting. Um, the best part about loans like this, and if you've ever tried to take out a loan for anything, you'll realize they ask for collateral. Mm-hmm. Um, and for these loans, you're not as concerned with having collateral, um, which then opens it up to a whole new range of people who don't necessarily have property. Mm-hmm. Instead, kind of what they do is they pool borrowers together, like, as a buffer. So, like, recipients will pay their debts together and can rely on each other. Like, hey, I can't make the payment this week. Can you cover me? Yeah. And- I, did you, have you seen anything? They do this sometimes in some of the, like, isolated African villages where they'll basically bring the entire village together and be like, hey, this is what we're proposing to you. Mm-hmm. And then they'll do it as like a community-wide function with like whoever the village leader usually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would be like a really good use of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps them also establish like a really good credit history so they can get bigger loans in the future. And they've had pretty good repayment rates as high as like 98%. Mm-hmm. 
they do charge interest on these loans, but I think it works because they institute really specific repayment plans, mm-hmm. um, which kind of just sets, like, a schedule, and, like, it isn't, like, overwhelming for first-time borrowers. Yeah, I've also seen sometimes where they do, like, the delayed start repayment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them will have, like, a two- to five-year not repayment period. Buffer? Buffer? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I've seen a lot of people start microfinance. There is some kind of, like, critique against it, which I'll mention here. I don't know how valid it is because, again, I'm not an economist. Um, But, like, some people say this, like, is... There are some moral boundaries that need to be set really well. Otherwise, this is a system that can be used to take advantage of the poor. And Mm. that's kind of what ended up happening with Jonathan Swift's Irish Loan Fund after it evolved in the 1840s during the Irish Potato Famine. It is also currently happening in the United States in the small personal loan industry. Oh, really? I did not know this. Yes, because I invested in it at one point and I made a really good return, but that means that other people are getting the shit interested out of them. Oh, rough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, that's microfinance. Mm-hmm. Um, the most, like, when microfinance became popular was in the 1970s. And the first organization to receive attention for doing microfinance was the Grameen Bank, which was started in 1983 by Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh. Interesting. Yeah. They have, like, um, this thing called 16 Decisions, which is a basic list of ways that the poor can improve their lives. And I was, like, real sketch about this at first, because I was like, it's going to be some dumb, like... Find God. Yeah. (laughs) Um... But it was actually really useful. It was, like, send your kids to get educated, um, like, have hard work and, like, decision-making at the core of who you are. And, like, I don't know, like, all the rules read really well to me and, like, seemed like they were just good rules. Like, I didn't find any, like, biases so much as in just, like, helping people make great financial decisions. Mm. So. Okay. But one of the things that the Grameen Bank did later on is they released a documentary, and in this documentary, they call they reframe the like poor, underprivileged people as bonsai people. Um, and this is a quote from Muhammad Yunus: "Is that there's nothing wrong with their seed? Society never allowed them the space to grow as tall as everybody else." Ah, oh, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, but then this led me down the journey of wait, what the fuck are bonsai trees? <laughs> like their own seed and they were like super special seeds that they grew and they grew into the tiny tree but then i discovered bonsai trees are not any specific species of trees you can create them from any woody plant mm-hmm. and then you use like pruning and confining it to a pot to make it retain its small shape yeah like, that's why well that's why it's so like it's actually really hard to take care of them because um one, since you're constantly pruning them, you have to be really careful not to expose them to, like, anything that's going to give them infections mm-hmm. and kill them really early. Because, um, really, you're not supposed to, like, prune a tree more than once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just unnatural. Yeah, but that's what makes it a houseplant. <laughs> I love the way you said that. A <laughs> uh, houseplant. 
Yeah. <laughs> Audience, you can't see it, but she also did, like a little head tilt. It's very <laughs> cute. And that's my story. I like it. I recently re-listened to the JFK assassination series by the last podcast on the left. They are great. Strongly recommend. It is a really long series. It is five parts, I think. In the first half, they literally just go into the like background on Oswald, who was the assassin. Um, but this whole thing got me thinking about the history of presidential assassinations. Have we had that many? Well, I think there's been three. And then there's a bunch of attempts that no one really talks about. Like There's been three outside of JFK and Lincoln. McKinley. Oh, and Garfield. So four. Okay. Two of these are presidents that are not. <laughs> Apparently um, I don't care about them because it hasn't stuck in my memory. <laughs> and then Ford, Carter, Reagan. They were all attempts. Was there anyone else? Yeah. Who else was attempts? Jackson. I don't know. Oh, Andrew Jackson. Oh, ooh, blast from the past. It would be bad if someone didn't attempt to kill Andrew <laughs> Yeah, seriously. <laughs> He's kind of one of those where it's like, yeah. Maybe I should have tried a little harder. <laughs> Rough. And now he's on the $20 bill. Every day. Disappointing things happen. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of where we're at right now. All right. And that's the end of our podcast. Thank you for kidding. <laughs> so anyway, I want to start today by telling you about what I think is the most cinematic presidential assassination. Mm. What a rough way of putting things. Anyway, who is it? You already know who. You saw my computer. Just just tell me who it is. Oh, I don't know. No, girl, no. Maybe the sexiest president ever, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> More like the gayest president ever. Interesting. You don't you don't subscribe to those theories? I, I just don't know about them. Oh. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Not today. Not today. This is, today we're talking mostly about she the person that actually killed audience. him. Gay Lincoln. <laughs> question mark, question mark. I feel like it's not, it's pretty, it's pretty like. We'll be on a Patreon. There. This is the kind of exclusive <laughs> content you would hear on the Patreon. Gay Lincoln. Tune in for more. But none of you fuckers will listen. So we don't have a Patreon. Wow, I hear that shaming the audience is a great way to up your numbers. <laughs> okay, so... Do you know anything about the Abraham Lincoln assassination? Yeah, it was like in a theater. They went, bam, he died. Yes. Do you know who his assassin was? John Wilkes Booth. There we go. Great. You've got your middle school history down. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What else is there that's really important? Do you know what John Wilkes Booth said after shooting the president? Pow, pow. Yes, that's right, Divya. Apparently Luke knows. He's that's, so excited. That's right, Divya. You know what? John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln, threw the gun aside, put up his finger guns, and went pow, pow. <laughs> pow, pow. <laughs> Sound engineer Lewis, do you I, have something to say? I do. He said, ow, my leg, because he jumped <laughs> off the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that is true. He actually did jump off a balcony. Um, okay, so the basics. What happened when Abraham Lincoln was shot? His wife. What? <laughs> no, no, no. I wasn't asking you this. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln was at the theater watching our American cousin when he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. Um, following the assassination, Booth jumped down from the balcony, as Luke just said. Ow, my leg. He yelled either Sic Semperis Tyrannus. Oh, I remember this. Which is Latin for thus always to tyrants. Mm-hmm. Or the South is avenged. Mm-hmm. And attempted to flee while injured. Because Ow. yes, he did break his ankle. And then he got caught trying after he was trying to get it fixed at a bar. Well, no shit he got caught because he broke his ankle and jumped from a balcony. He didn't think through the escape plan. He didn't want to escape. He actually got way further than he really should have. Yeah, honestly, he did. He actually did, like, flee pretty well. But like everyone knew who he was. He was also, yeah. like, a famous actor at the time. So everyone knew him. Mm. And he was literally at... Okay, our American cousin. This is an important note. His brother was acting in the show. Oh. Yeah, shit gets real wild. Real fast. Was his brother in on it? Mm, we'll talk about it. No. He's not. I like how you tease out the story. <laughs> I, I was like, we'll I, talk about it. Except, no, he, he <laughs> isn't at all. Um, we'll talk about it. Talk about it right after this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, on the surface, after this happened, there's also a lot of tensions going on in the country. You know, there's this thing called the Civil War. You might have heard of it. Is that one of, like, the lesser-known wars of America? Yeah, yeah. It was pretty small, you know. There wasn't too much involved there. And it never changed the fabric of our nation for the worse. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, so there was this little thing going on, and there were a lot of people that were kind of like, yeah. And then there were a lot of people that were like, what the fuck? She's described every war that's ever happened. Well, yeah, but it's really bad when all the people in the South are just kind of like, cool, the president's dead. Great. That's all we wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is, is that like on both sides, the story ended up kind of being painted as this like martyr character that came in and sacrificed everything in order to take out someone that he felt was a tyrant. Mm. Because the story kind of ended up converting from like, who is Booth, Mm -hmm. into more of a, this is America and this is something that we should stand for no matter what. Assassinating our presidents? Well, yeah, kind of, right? Like, America was founded on this deep sense of freedom. Mm, Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it's kind of fucked up to think about, right? But, like, that statement, that sick semperist (laughs) tyrannous. I'm just thinking of the idea of, you know... In a world where you can't shoot the president, you're not free to shoot the president. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but that's actually, like, like okay, so one of the reasons why they were like, oh my god, look at this guy, he's so great, he did this whole thing, believe, like, standing up for what he believed in, a lot of people in the country are disillusioned at the time anyway, so, like, they were very quick, there was a big movement that was very quick to be like, this is a hero. Mm. 
Um, and part of it was that that six semper, yeah, six semper tyrannis mm -hmm. that he said is the motto, the state motto of Virginia. Oh. Yeah. Which is like a border state during the Civil War, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, it was a slavery state, really. Mm -mm -mm. Okay. Yeah. So, there's a lot of people that are very quick to just, like, own him and just be like, this is an American, and not even just an American hero, but this is, like, an American figure. He did something intensely, like, he truly believed in what he was doing, and he was doing it for the country, whatever that meant, right? right. Well, the reality of it, Booth, he's just kind of like a sad little dude that was living in his brother's shadow. Mm. Let's talk about it. Can I talk about it from the perspective of a younger sibling? Uh, no. No. Because he's just kind of a douche. Okay. I don't actually know if he's the youngest sibling. Of the two? I feel like three. Really... There's three. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But there's like one. He must be the youngest. Yeah, he is the youngest. It's well, giving, anyway, he's still a moron. Living in the shadow of your brother is giving youngest energy. Yeah. I mean, he also was just like, he was a he was an actor. Mm. He was a good actor. But he wasn't as good as his siblings. Oh, rough. Yeah. And his one brother was, like, really, really good and made a lot of money and ended up, like, founding a theater later. So, you know. He's the Kevin Jonas of the Booth brothers. Yeah, seriously. Rough. But that was, like, the one that made a lot of money and was the best. He was the one that was acting in the show that night. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is where things get very complicated. And this is more of what I subscribe to of... What is, who is Booth? Mm -hmm. What is Booth up to? Why is he doing this? Right. Um, so he came from an acting family. His father was a famous actor in England who immigrated to the U.S. in the, the 1820s. Not the 1920s. That'd be rough. Um, <laughs> things for his family were really weird because Booth Sr. didn't divorce his original wife in England. And then he came here, settled down, and married, and had kids. And then it came out that he didn't divorce his original wife. So technically all of the kids were deemed illegitimate. Oh. Yeah, which is like Yay. a huge problem in the mid-1800s. He was an out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, really, really. He's an actor. We, you know, talent. He's talent. He's talent. He's talent. You can't expect him to do all the logistics. He's talent. <laughs> so... Just made me think of the boys. Yeah, made yeah. me think of the boys too. <laughs> Talent, you get it. Um, so little little Johnny Wilkes Booth didn't really take that very well. He mm -hmm. kind of ended up having like a mini identity crisis and got very instead of being a reasonable person, reasonable person and being like my father's a douche, he was mm -hmm. kind of one of those guys that was like, mm, I am a Booth. Like he really just owned. It was like, family identity. He like overdid. He overcompensated. There we go. That's yeah. the word. As he was like, I'm an illegit illegitimate child. No, I'm going to be the boothiest boots you've ever seen. Right. Yeah. Um. So all of the Booth brothers, all three of them, mm -hmm. end up becoming professional actors. Um, and there's a huge push from the father for them to do this. And they often compete against each other. Um, oh. And the father also, like, while he was alive, very blatantly favored Edwin. Rough. Yeah, yeah. They were the original Disney kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of other shit. 
Um, as I said before, like Booth was actually a fairly good actor, and he went, he did a bunch of different shows and different tours, and was in like very famous Shakespearean plays and that kind of stuff. But nothing felt good because his brother was always doing better. Right, and oftentimes like he ended up on a lot of shows with his brother, mm. and it was kind of like the family name recognition. Yeah, and it was also the thing where his brother would get the lead role, and then he would get like the second. You know, mm-hmm. so not cute. Not cute. Not cute. Now, things get really important here. Timeline wise. That we've just forgotten about. Who gives a fuck? His name is Junius Junior. Oh, Junius. <laughs> Poor Junius. He's pretty Did good you though. Is that the name of the kid in Spy Kids? Girl, I don't know. Yeah, it's like Junie. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Junie Junior is not that important here. Okay. Yeah. He's just kind of there. He well, didn't. He didn't kill any presidents, and he wasn't the most famous. So like. No, no. A moment of peace for the middle child <laughs> of the Booth family. Junie, we see you. We love you. What did Junie get up to? That's what I want to know. All right. You can continue on in your story. Okay. So, a few months before the assassination, Booth and all th- all well, all three of the Booth brothers. Sorry. Performed Julius Caesar for a benefit, and Booth plays Mark Antony. Okay. <laughs> He's, like, really unhappy about this because, background, um, him and his brothers also used to perform Julius Caesar for their dad mm-hmm. when they were kids, and Booth, main Booth, would always be Mark Antony. Mm-hmm. And he always wanted to be Brutus so that he could do the big speech after Julius Caesar yeah. dies. Mm-hmm. No. Doesn't get something about stars and how we can't count them. Something like that. Yeah. That's where the, you know how I know that? Because it's in the fall of our stars. <laughs> oh my god. By John Green. Thank but you, he, John Green. He also says something else. Mm. What else does Brutus say? Not a too brute. No. The fallen star stars. He says, "Sick, Semper, Tyrannus." Oh, I didn't read the play in the original. <laughs> well, no, he says that in in the Shakespearean version. He says. Oh, he says it in Latin. Yeah. Oh. It's it's an important line in the play because they also like there's some. It's history is out. But there are historians who believe that that was the first thing Brutus said after the death of Caesar. Wow. So he was just like making fun of his brother when he leaped off and everyone turned it into a whole big thing. He wasn't making fun of his brother. You know what he was doing? He was throwing a little child temper tantrum and going, look, I finally get to say the words. Wow. He was the first white kid shooter. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Rough. But you've set a tradition that continues on in our country. <laughs> Thanks, Booth. Yeah. Dickhead. So, you know what? And you know what the most important part is? I think I think that John Wilkes Booth was aware of when he did this. You can be a famous actor in your time and get lost in history. But you know what? A presidential assassin lives forever. Wow. He is the most famous of his siblings for that very reason. For me, it's Junie. <laughs> <laughs> the guy 
guy whose name had to be asked for. <laughs> I've always known about Ginny. Ginny and I go way back to the 1800s. <laughs> You're not even a middle sibling. I don't care. <laughs> I can empathize. Sympathize. <laughs> well... Amanda's fully red. <laughs> that was pretty good. Was... <laughs> um, yeah, well. I don't even want to hear about John anymore. <laughs> well, we're pretty much done with him. Okay, good. Because now we're going to move. On to Junie? No. Oh. We're moving away from all the booths. They're dead. Yeah. Long dead. You know what we're going to talk about now? A musical. Okay, I should have begged this one coming. I knew it was coming at some point. <laughs> what? Come here and kill a president. Oh, is this what I heard while I was reading my novel? Yes, I got really excited and ended up playing the... What is it? You've got the right. I think that's what it's called. Everybody, everyone's got the right. You need more context on that. Yeah, so this, the, <laughs> Jesus. So the musical's called Assassins. Oh. Yeah. It's all about presidential assassins. It's all about presidential assassins and attempted presidential assassins. Okay. So it, like, follows each story kind of chronologically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, I think most of them get their own individual number to kind of, like, talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. And then the first song, the opening song, and the reprisal at the end... Is everybody's got the right. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really funny because it kind of speaks into what I was originally talking about with Booth, where it's like, did he do this because he was a whiny little bitch? Or did he do this because he was standing up for his country? Mm-hmm. Well, we know he was a whiny little bitch. Yeah. And I kind of think, so Stephen Som- Sondheim. Sondheim. Yeah. Helped out with this musical, mm-hmm. like putting the scores together and everything. Yeah. And I think that they kind of understood that he was a whiny little bitch <laughs> so that everyone's got the right song mm-hmm. was very much to be like yeah everyone's got the fucking right yeah <laughs> do whatever you want come here and kill the president you know <laughs> sure um, I want you to actively quote Amanda audience <laughs> out of context <laughs> everybody's got the fucking right Everybody kill the president <laughs> So, <laughs> this musical came out in the 1990s. Like mm-hmm. I said, um, Stephen Song- Songheim was the what? He was the musical dude? director? Dude? Yeah, I don't know exactly. Whatever Songheim does for musicals, that's what he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There okay. we go. Um, and there were a bunch of other people that were on the project that like helped out and got, got everything um, but the important thing to note here, in case you're wondering, mm. there was a good amount of pushback when they were like, hey, we're making a musical, it's called Assassins. It's all about killing presidents. Rough. <laughs> Did a president go to see this play? Because that would have been hilarious. I'm sure that they have. <laughs> um, seriously, I'm sure that they have. It had like a long run on Broadway. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But initially, it started off as an off-Broadway play, and that's very important to note. 
because off-Broadway musicals have a big history of ending up on Broadway after they get popular, um, even if they're wildly unhinged. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I really only wanted to visit Assassins for a very quick trip to say, like, this is a thing that exists, mm-hmm. by the way. Very fun. Um, now we're going to just dive into what off-Broadway musicals are. Just a tad bit. I did not know this. There are very specific criteria for being deemed an off-Broadway musical. I would, I love to, I would love to know this. Do you really? Want I am actually so serious. <laughs> Everybody goes, it's off-Broadway. I'm gonna see an off-Broadway musical. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Everything's off-Broadway if it's not on-Broadway. Well, okay. So there's like a few different things. Okay. You can be touring, mm-hmm. which is when they come around, right? Mm-hmm. You can be off-Broadway production. You can also be off off Broadway production, and then you can be on Broadway. Insane. Yeah. Okay. So, off Broadway specifically means that you're in a theater that has this is an exact count between 100 and 499 seats. They said 500. Fuck you. You can't do 500. It is literally in the Actors Guild's um, contracts Whoa. that you cannot seat 500 audience members for an off-Broadway musical. (laughs) Isn't that wild? It is really wild. Yeah. So, basically, like, the difference between off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway is you have to have at least 100. Okay. The difference between off-Broadway and Broadway is that you can't go above 500, or you can't go 500 or higher for audience members. And then anything that's outside of New York City is just something else entirely. Oh, it has to be New York City. It's got to be New York City. I'm walking here. Streets with tomatoes. You've never heard that, the joke version? No. Oh. Well, anyway. Off-Broadway. Why is that important? That's a great question, Amanda. Good question. (laughs) <laughs> Do you have a question? That's not my question. <laughs> um, they use houseplants a ton in off-Broadway productions because when they hit... What? <laughs> when there's what in the actual fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you fill the other seats up with houseplants. So you fill the house. You get a pop. Pop, pop. Audience, I would like you to know that Divya has raised her arms up and is doing a little... I'm raising the roof. She's doing a raising the roof thing. Oh, yeah. This is almost the same movement that gave me a terrible pain in my back <laughs> yesterday. Pop. Pop, pop. <laughs> I'm an old person. <laughs> I move a little bit. My body goes, ow, ow. And then a houseplant blooms somewhere in a off-Broadway theater. <laughs> and that's a butterfly effect. <laughs> Why are off-Broadway musicals important? She asked herself, Amanda, and I answered. And she didn't like my answer, so now Amanda's going to answer the question. Your answer wasn't even about off- You could do it in a Broadway musical, too. 
So the off-Broadway movement started in the 1950s, and the reason why was to bring more creative, less commercially viable projects to the public. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, there were a lot of like great screenplays and stuff that would never have gotten their day in the light, you know? Mm-hmm. So in many cases... After initially successful runs, I think I kind of mentioned this before, these musicals end up being Broadway shows. They just have to prove that they are commercially viable first. Right. So these are the shows that don't have houseplants sitting in the audience because the audience is all people. What a concept. What a concept. I like my audience generally about 75% people and 25% houseplants. And right now, our podcast audience is all houseplants. <laughs> Hello. Bonsai trees. <laughs> okay. So, here's a few of the shows that have gone from off-Broadway to Broadway. Okay. And I feel like, for a lot of them, they have a very different feel from, like, traditional on-Broadway musicals. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Avenue Q. I showed you that one. That was yeah. the one with the puppets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rock of Ages. Dear Evan Hansen, Hades Town, oh, and the story that we're gonna wrap up with today, <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, this is one you really like. Little shop, little shop of horrors, little shop, little shop of horrors. Okay, so Little Shop of Horrors is a goofy, low-budget musical with a medium plot, medium at best plot. <laughs> um, Based on a black comedy film that was created in the 1960s of the same name. Uh, black comedy is not black people comedy. It is, like, dark comedy, but they specifically called it black comedy. That is a very, very good thing for you to clarify, because I definitely thought it was the other thing. I saw it in your eyeballs. I was, I was like, uh, she... Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess. <laughs> I feel like black comedy in the 1960s of the other version would not be not, good. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be something I would say I mean, I about think that it is when, who are you, like, who's coming to dinner was first released, like the original version. In the 1960s? All right, she's Googling it. She questions me, kid. 1967. Oh! Oh! I'm so good. That just gained us one viewer. (laughs) Okay. So, the musical takes place in a very poor, made-up city area that's called Skid Row, not related to Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. Um, and centers around these two co-workers at a flower shop named Seymour and Audrey. Okay. Okay. I personally, like, I'm a huge fan of this musical because there is a movie version of it with Rick Moranis as Seymour and Steve Martin playing Audrey's asshole boyfriend slash a dentist. <laughs> Luke knows. Um, and I grew up watching this movie. My family is really into that kind of dark comedy. Well, you know, they're related to me. So, you know. Um, and I think that it's a great example of, like, something that couldn't have started on Broadway, but we would have greatly missed out on Mm. without it. Right, right. Yeah. The musical itself is very unique. Um, it was one of the earliest versions of a horror musical, and it also was the first horror musical to make it to Broadway. Also, 
was the first musical to introduce to integrate duop and Motown into the composition composition, and it uh, won a ship shit ton of awards for it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's also like one more thing about off Broadway musicals. They tend to be groundbreaking in what they're introducing. They can often be much darker than traditional on Broadway musicals. Like Hairspray. It did that one start as an on Broadway musical? Probably. Like probably. Uh, honestly, though, I am reflecting on the movie and not the play, so maybe that's influencing my view. Mm, no, it's pretty. No, it's the same. Yeah. 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 I don't hate to hairspray, but hate to hairspray. <laughs> okay. Also, we should watch it. Hairspray? No, we should watch Little Shop of Horror. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's on the list. We're adding it to the list. So I haven't actually told you about the horror element of it yet. I just kind of gave you like a few details. Yeah, they own a flower shop. That sounds delightful. <laughs> so I saved the horror element for the very end because this is how everything ties in. Lovely, lovely. So basically what happens is Seymour is in love with Audrey. Expected. As he should be. Yeah. There's like a love triangle situation going on, except... Oh, <laughs> look who's using a love triangle to sell her story. Except it's just Seymour having a crush on this girl that's also in a relationship, and he's too much of a wuss to actually say anything about it. Rip. Mm-hmm. Audrey, on the other hand, is dating this asshole dentist dude. There's literally a song called Dentist where Steve Martin just sings about how he likes torturing people. Yikes. It's amazing. That's a horror element. Dentistry. <laughs> um, so then one day they're at the shop, or they're not at the shop. They go into the shop and they find that right after a solar eclipse, there's this new plant that no one's ever seen in the shop before, and it's this large Venus flytrap. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now Seymour decides that he's gonna take care of it, and he's gonna like tend to it and stuff, and he decides to name it. Audrey, too, because this boy is sad. Yeah. (laughs) He's giving Drake. Yeah. So. What? Wait. What? Two love triangles with the same person named twice. (laughs) The love triangles. (laughs) There's two Audreys. I mean, he's not, like, going to try to fuck the plan or anything. Um, How long did this story go on? And did it get cut short? (laughs) Because... Well, a lot of people get eaten, so... By the Venus flytrap? Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Okay, so, he's tending to the plant. It's not doing well. One day, he accidentally cuts his finger on one of its thorns, and there's some blood, and the plant gets blood on it, and is like, I'm doing so much better now. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so Seymour was like, great, blood, that's how I keep you alive. Not thinking about the alternative of... Why don't I just let you die wow. now? Seymour seems like a sweetie. <laughs> he really, really is. So he keeps feeding the plant his own blood. And I know, I know. And the weird thing is, is this plant, like the success of this plant seems to be having this magical parallel on the shop itself. Because all of a sudden the shop is doing a lot better. Oh. Yeah. As the plant, the plant is, like, continuing to grow the whole time that Seymour's tending to it, mm-hmm. aka feeding it his blood. Um, 
And the plant ends up, or sorry, the shop ends up doing so well as the plant is growing that the shop owner decides to make Seymour a partner because he's like, this is clearly all because of you. Mm. So I'm going to make you a partner in the shop. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's some shit going down with Audrey and the boyfriend and Seymour because Seymour is like defending Audrey against the asshole boyfriend, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Anyway, what ends up happening? It's great. It's great. The asshole boyfriend gets fed to Audrey too. Oh, wow. 10 out of 10. <laughs> wow, I would actually really like to watch Steve Martin get eaten by a Venus flytrap. Just because I feel like he would make that so funny. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> we'll be watching this movie. So she says. <laughs> as we look down in infinitesimal space on this list. Oh, also, it's at this point, or like right before he eats the dentist, that Seymour finds out Audrey too can talk. And oh. sing. Oh. And Audrey too sings this number that's just like, feed me Seymour. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so he eats Steve Martin. Great. Not great. And then, unfortunately, he also eats Audrey. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Is he like, lo- is, the, is the plant like loyal to Seymour? plant is loyal to no one okay seymour at this point is like fuck this plant just ate the love of my life audrey too cannot replace audrey for reals in my heart oh this is like problem. dying early <laughs> esther number two can never replace esther number one <laughs> so then before Seymour's like, I'm making a final decision here. This dude comes in and he's like a financier type. And he's like, listen, if we take cuttings from this plant and give it to a bunch of other flower shops, they'll all have their own plant and we can start selling these to people. Because he doesn't know how Seymour's been keeping the plant so healthy. Oh, yeah. Seymour. Yeah. Be more transparent in your business transactions. Well, I think man-eating plant isn't necessarily a great, like, marketing campaign. So then, Seymour's like, uh, this is no good. Mm-hmm. We must kill plant. Mm-hmm. Seymour goes to kill plant. Audrey 2 eats him. Okay. Yeah. At the end of the... The financier comes back. They take clippings from the plant. They start growing them in a lot of different shops. The closing song gives you like a little little snippets of what's happening now. The plant now has little babies growing all around the country and things look very bad. It ends on this very like Twilight Zone-esque, all these little plants growing. Everyone's clearly going to die. The plant is going to take over everything. Yikes. That's it. Seymour. In conclusion, stay away from Venus flytraps. They're not good houseplants if they like blood, not flies. Yes, exactly. What a wonderful moral messaging we have. <laughs> We're like the golden age of cartoons. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. That's all you got? That's all I got. 
So, house plants. House plants. So, did you understand the example I gave you of how our podcast works? <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> it's a great example of how we started off in very different places and somehow ended up at house plants. How did we get here? How That's did how. we get here? I just explained it to you for two hours. So, you didn't get it. That's kind of on you at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad for you. But tell yeah. me the next topic. The next topic is marzipan. Marzipan? I don't even know what that is. Isn't it the fake frosting shit? It's it's no. the hard frosting shit that you turn into... No? It's like a sweet thing made out of almonds. Bitch, that's what sweet I was talking about. Sweet thing made out of almonds. Oh, you're almond. talking about fondante. Oh, I am talking about fondant. Marzipan. Wait, but you shape it too, right? Like yeah, they put it on all it. the fancy cakes and shit. Marzipan is very moldable. It's like it tastes like ass. Okay. You know when people make those really like ultra realistic fancy looking cakes? Mm-hmm. It's all covered in marzipan. It's all stupid. No. Is that fondant? Yes. Fuck. Like the frosting thing is fondant. Uh. No, like, when they make the sheets of it. That's fondant. Oh. Maybe that's made from the same thing, but marzipan is. It can it's is like a dough or like a you can make it into different things like a cookie dough. But Find out on our next episode. Where <laughs> what the fuck is marzipan? This is <laughs> my brain is going to zero places because I don't know what marzipan is. Great, love it, love it, love it, love it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, how did I get myself in this situation? <laughs> Ready to learn about baking? No. Oh. No. Well, then you might not have fun with this one. I might not just learn how it's baked. <laughs> I might just finesse my way so far away from it that you might wonder. How, how do we, we get, get here? here? <laughs> we were your hosts, Amanda and Vivia, and we thank you very, very much for listening. Hold on. Capitalist girlies must plug. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram. And how did we get here? Underscore confusion. We also now have a TikTok, Amanda. I believe it's also how did we get here? Underscore confusion. But I will double check for the next one. It's, yeah. There's also, we we added a link tree. Oh, did we add it to our Spotify yet? No, I don't think so. But it's on the Instagram, which I just gave you. Yes. So you can click there and then click to our TikTok. Yes. Be resourceful. Come on. You can do it. Yeah. Maybe didn't give you the right TikTok name, but come on. Spend the extra seconds. Get to know us. Listen, you guys are grownups. We believe in you. And we are about to post a shed tour. A shed tour, a podcast tour, a podcast (laughs) studio tour. I, I got there eventually. No, it's a shed tour. It's a shed tour. Yeah. Um, yeah. You'll get to see some the behind shed. the scenes of how Amanda and I and Luke record these things. Yeah, it's real cute. There's one more thing. Oh, there's one more thing. Please help us get to our goal. Oh my god, yes, we made goals. We would like to have five listeners for each episode in the first week that we actually release the episode. Our goals are small, but small goals... Lead to small wins? And small wins keep us going. Yeah. So we're not asking you to donate like NPR. We're Yet. just asking you to lend your time and listen to us, even though we have such subpar quality compared to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk with our voices okay. so softly. It's... 
I'm Ira Glass. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how did we get here? Tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Have a great whatever the fuck. Goodbye. Goodbye.